Well, we are continuing through 1 Corinthians uh, this evening. We're in chapter 4. It's been a little slow going, but that's kind of how we roll around here, uh, and that's okay. That's We want to uh, make sure that we cover the text and do that well, but uh, we are continuing to look at this long section here in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, and we're going to read verses 5 through 13 again tonight. Let's go ahead and stand and uh, read it together. 1 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one another, one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For, I think, God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Let's pray. Father, we again just acknowledge how much that we rely on you for everything in the Christian life. We uh, rely on your Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth of your word. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word and that we have it in this country. We have the freedom to worship and we have Bibles and we have so many resources by which we can study your word. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. But, Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to understand it rightly. And, Lord, we know that comes by your Spirit. And so, Lord, we uh, again acknowledge that uh, we need you. We need you every day uh, to live the Christian life. And we are so dependent on you. And yet, Lord, your promise is that you provide everything that we need for life and godliness. So we, we thank you for that. And Lord, our desire is to live in such a way that uh, we would glorify you, that we would uh, 
cause people to uh, see your great majesty and glory. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would allow us to do that and help us to be a people that is a, uh, a light in this community. And, and Lord, that uh, you would bless each and every aspect of the ministry. And, Lord, we thank you for the, the way we see you at work. So, Lord, we pray again tonight you would bless our, our worship and our study of your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn with me again in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 4. And tonight uh, we'll be looking at those verses that we just read. The title for the message is The True Cause of Division, Spiritual Pride. For four whole chapters now, Paul has been dealing with the problem of divisions and factions in this carnal Corinthian church. And by the way, wouldn't you agree that this must be a pretty important subject for Paul to spend so much time on this? I mean, any time that you do Bible study, uh, one of the keys of knowing what is the most important to the Spirit of God is to know how much is given to that subject. And the reason for this, as you probably know, is that this was originally written on a papyrus roll. And because it was much harder to produce something something like this than in our day and time, obviously we're used to print media, we're used to, you know, computer uh, media, tech, technical uh, media, but they didn't have any of that in the day in which this was written. And the authors of Scripture tend to be very concise because of this. So when you see several chapters given to one subject, you know it is something that is very, very important. And I think we would have to say that This really is the most prominent issue in this book, although we're going to see some other important issues that are also given a lot of treatment as well later on. It's been a couple of weeks, and uh, we've really been in this for quite some time. So let me just give you a quick review this evening of what we've covered so far in those first few chapters. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, we see that he deals with the confirmation of their identity in Christ, and he admonishes them to grow spiritually, grow to spiritual maturity. He affirms them as God's elect, and he says that they are lacking in no spiritual gift, and there's no reason why they should remain in an infant state as believers. They, as a church, need to grow to spiritual maturity. They uh, just need to become all that God intends for them to be. And then in chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, he describes their quarreling, their division, their strife. Chloe's people had informed Paul that there there were some divisions uh, in the church And so he urges them to be of the same mind, doctrinally. And by the way, the only way you can do that is to study God's Word and come to the same conclusion about what His Word teaches. 
But he urges them to begin to walk together in unity. They had been dividing into cliques. They were, some of them were claiming to be of Paul, some of Apollos, some of Peter. And so Paul begins his argument that this is a very detrimental thing to do. This is something that's not healthy for the church. And it's not a mature thing to do. In chapter 1, verses 18 to 31, he compares the wisdom of God and the foolishness of men. We spent a lot of time in this section. The Corinthians were following the cue of their culture in pursuing human wisdom. That was something they highly prized in uh, the Greco-Roman world in that day. But Paul explains that God makes foolish the wisdom of the world, while at the same time he exalts those who are following the true wisdom of God. And he explains that the wisdom of God is far superior to the wisdom of men, And he explains that the only thing they really have to boast of is the Lord himself. They really cannot boast in their own wisdom. Well, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, he explains the mystery and the power of the gospel. To the world, the message of the cross is foolishness and weakness, but... It is the power of God unto salvation for all those who put their hope and trust in Christ. He also explains that his own preaching had been with much fear and trembling, but that God had used the power of the gospel to save their souls and to truly make them wise in this age. God's wisdom, he says, is a mystery that had been hidden, but in these last days has been revealed. And so God has now given us his Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts to his true wisdom. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he discussed their carnality. He explained that the problem there in the church is that they were acting fleshly. They were acting as an immature uh, congregation. This was a real problem in the Corinthian church. These Corinthian believers were acting carnally. They were acting fleshly. They were giving in to their fleshly appetites and pursuits. And we're going to see this will impact how they understood various areas of doctrine that we'll examine as we go along. The problem, though, is that they were spiritual babies when they ought to have become mature by this time. And this, in essence, was a key root to their division, root cause for their division. They should have grown up to the place where they understood that all God's servants have different roles and that really all of us are nothing in comparison to the one who gives the increase. Some cultivate, Paul says, some plant, some water, but it is God 
who gives the increase. And it's only the Lord that deserves the glory. Well, then Paul gave three illustrations. You may remember these illustrations in chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. He gave the illustration of God's fields. And he went through that. Some cultivate, some plant, some water. It's all God's fields. God's the one who gives the increase. In chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, he gave the illustration of God's building and making sure we build with the right materials. And we build that which is lasting. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, we saw the illustration of God's stewards and uh, managing God's household and that pastors are uh, God's stewards and that it is important that uh, they are faithful. Well, Paul then ended verse 4 with the thought that we shouldn't be comparing ourselves with others because God is the only one who determines whether or not we have been faithful stewards. And he is the only one who really knows the hearts and the motives of men's hearts. But now beginning in verse 5, he's going to wrap up his discussion of this topic of division. And we read it a few minutes ago, but let's go through it in a little more detail. When Paul uses the word therefore in verse 5, he's saying that this is the conclusion of his reasoning so far. He gives his conclusion in three parts. The admonition, the application, and the amplification. So let's begin by looking at the admonition. What is the admonition here? He says, quit judging each other and comparing yourselves to each other. Why? Because none of us has all the facts. None of us has all the facts. Listen, no matter what the situation may be, there is never a time when we can make a perfect judgment because we are always limited in our knowledge and understanding. The hidden things of darkness in verse 5 and the counsels of the heart both mean the same thing. Both are referring to the attitudes of the inner man that only God can see. Only God can see the heart. Only God can see the motives. And the context here, remember, is praise, not condemnation. The last part of verse 5 says, Then each one's praise will come from God. He's talking about praise that comes from being a faithful steward. And the truth of the matter is, we may appear to be doing God's will, in a, matter, in a manner that pleases God, but He is really the only one who knows our hearts. He really is the only one who knows if we're doing it with the right motive. We might fool other people, but we can never fool God. God knows our hearts. Listen, you can, you can hear me preach a sermon, and you may think that it is pleasing to God, but only God knows my heart. When I preach, 
I may hear you sing a solo and I may be really blessed, but only God knows if your heart is right as you sing it. And that can be applied to any kind of service in the church. You know, men see what people do, but God sees the heart. Only God has that information. God knows if our inner motives are pure. But none of us can know that. So we can't make that kind of judgment. It is possible to do something to be seen of men and to do things to impress other people, but not to have pure motives. And, of course, that also is a reminder to us that anything we do in service to the Lord, we need to first examine our own hearts and make sure we're doing it for the right reason. We're doing it for the Lord and as unto the Lord. Folks, why is this so important for us to understand? Because it ultimately ends up affecting the way we treat one another. This makes a big difference in the church that we withhold judgment and that we don't start thinking certain things about certain people and other things about other people, it makes a difference in how we treat one another. John MacArthur writes, The rewards given will not be based on the degrees behind our name, the numbers we have preached to or witnessed to, the programs we have planned or directed, or even the number of converts won to Christ through us. Speaking of pastors here, it will be based on one thing alone, the motives, boule, the secret thoughts of our hearts. And God is the only one who knows that. Do you remember? Turn with me for just a moment to 1 Corinthians 13. It's going to be a long time before we get to the 1 Corinthians 13, but turn over there for just a moment. And you, I'm sure, are familiar with this. 1 Corinthians 13 and verses 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I could remove mountains but have not Love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, the amazing thing about that as you go through that is from those actions, you would assume the person has to have love. But the Scripture indicates that may not always be the case. I could be the most gifted, knowledgeable, impressive person in the world, but if I'm not doing all the things that I do with the proper motive, it is for naught. If I don't have love, if it's not a sincere motive of the heart, it's all for naught. I might as well be a clanging symbol up here because it really is for naught. And I think one of the greatest surprises that we will have when we get to heaven will be that those who are in the limelight here on earth are not the ones who will necessarily 
receive the most rewards in heaven. I think it's going to be uh, pretty amazing when we see how it's going to shake out in the end. There are going to be multitudes, I believe, of inconspicuous, unknown saints receiving most of the crowns because their hearts are pure. They had very little earthly success or fame as pastors, but they served the Lord with sincere hearts of love and devotion to Him. At least those who serve as pastors. Folks, we've got to learn that God's ways are higher than man's ways. And that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Now, since all this is true then Paul's argument is how ridiculous it is for people to elevate one person above another. This is Paul's argument. Since none of us really know the inner motives of the heart, then we should never put someone on a pedestal and think more highly of them or ourselves than we ought to think. We are simply stewards. We are servants of Christ. We are slaves of Christ. We are under rowers, galley slaves. So that's the admonition. But Paul moves, secondly, to the application. So look with me at verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos, For your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, and that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Paul says, I've been using Apollos and myself as examples, but now I'm going to point the finger at you. He's quit preaching here and started meddling. You see, folks, quite honestly, these Corinthian believers have a real problem with pride. A problem with pride. We see it in their quarreling. We see it in their family relationships. We're going to see it later on in their worship practices. We're going to see it in their abuse of the spiritual gifts. On and on we could go. They have a real problem with pride. And Paul here is saying, here's the problem. It's your pride. It's your pride. Pride was a big problem in the Corinthian church. And guess what? Pride is still a problem in the church today. In many churches, there are those who are seeking prominence and prestige. There are those seeking to usurp authority and position. And there are those who are seeking certain gifts and Miracles to exalt man and not God. Now, don't misunderstand. The Bible does say that it is right and proper to respect God-given leaders in the church, but only within the bounds of Scripture. We must not think beyond what is written. That's verse 6. We've got to make sure that when we... Uh, show appreciation, we show respect to the leaders of the church that we don't 
think beyond what is written. That we don't put someone up on a pedestal. You know, everything God intends for good, Satan always wants to pervert and distort. So it is with the difference between honoring those who lead you in the church and going too far with that. And notice, Paul doesn't pull any punches in verse 6. He just comes right out and says, you're arrogant. Literally, he uses the word puffed up, which means to overinflate, kind of like Tom Brady's footballs, right? Maybe they were under. I'm not sure which it was. But seriously, Paul says, you're full of pride like an overinflated tire. And then in verse 7, we see that their arrogance led to boasting. And Paul asks, why are you boasting? Why are you boasting? I mean, look at verse 7. For who makes you different from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Boasting and pride will be held in check if we'll remember one thing, and that's this. Everything we have is a gift from God. Everything comes from God. No matter what good thing you enjoy in this life, it is a gift from the hand of God. That will check pride and boasting every single time. You say, wait a minute, Pastor. You know, uh, I earned this. You know, I worked hard for it. But wait a minute. Who gave you the health so you could go out and work? Who provided this world in which we could live and work? Who even gave us life to begin with? It was God. All of it comes from God. Everything we have comes from His hand. No matter how hard we may have studied in school or worked at our business or profession, we should always remember that we would have nothing if it were not for the gracious, providential hand of God. God requires and demands that we work hard. But ultimately, everything that we have is a gift from His hand. And there is absolutely nothing that did not originate from Him. So Paul says, remember this. Why are you acting as if you didn't receive it as a gift? It all came from God. Why are you boasting? By the way, have you ever wondered what your life would be like if you were born under different circumstances? I mean, just sit some time and think about that. I mean, what if you and I were born in North Korea instead of the good old U.S. of A.? What would our life, how would our life be different tonight? I mean, you and I might be starving to death in some concentration camp right now. Or, more likely, we would be part of Kim Jong-un's military forces, whether we wanted to be or not. Now, I know that gets into the, old, the whole area of election and predestination, but we should remember how blessed we are 
to live in this country and to have all that we have. We often take that for granted. Why do we have all this? Is it because, you know, we're so special? Is it because we deserve it more than someone else? Is it because we're better than other people? No. For some reason, in God's omniscience and in His providence, He has made us the recipients of this great heritage that we enjoy. We have no reason to boast about it. If we live in a great country, it's because God gave it to us. God allowed us to live here. And if we had good parents, it's because God gave them to us. And if we have a good mind and creative talents or special skills, it's because God gave them to us. We have absolutely no reason to boast. We are God's stewards. Everything we have is on loan to us from God. He has entrusted it to us for a little while, and we are responsible to Him for what we do with it. So we must be faithful. Now, if that's true, which it is, then what right do any of us have to boast? What right do any of us have to be prideful? And you know what? Nothing is so self-deceiving as pride. I mean, most of us are prone to believe just about anything that anyone says as long as it's favorable. You know, somebody compliments us. Oh, yeah, you're, you're right. I'm just wonderful. And we just get so puffed up with pride. And Paul is so determined to get his point across that he even uses sarcasm here. I mean, some very strong sarcasm. I mean, in verse 8, look at it. You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. In order to unmask their conceit, he keeps on feigned praise. He tells them that they are great and wonderful. He tells them that they have arrived. And by the way, except for the context here, the Corinthians probably would have taken this at face value and thought, you know, he's right. We are really wonderful people. After all, that is exactly what they thought of themselves. Just like the Laodiceans that we studied in Revelation, they considered themselves to be rich and in need of nothing. In that last phrase, Paul is essentially saying, I wish it really was coronation time. I wish it really was the time when we all receive our golden crowns in our heavenly home. But it's not that time yet. The time one day will come But it was not that day for these prideful Christians. And so Paul says we need to keep these things in the proper perspective. Well, the last thing that Paul gives here is the amplification. 
the amplification. Here, Paul points to the apostles as examples of not being arrogant. The Corinthians were arrogant. That was their problem. The apostles give the other side. He describes how the apostles were viewed by the world. To the world, they were worthless teachers teaching worthless ideas worthy only of death, as indeed would be later fulfilled. The picture here in verse 9 is of criminals being publicly executed in the arena. The last ones that were brought out were those who were the great spectacles, the grand finale, if you will. And there are four words in verses 9 through 13 that summarize Paul's understanding of the role of the apostles in contrast to the Corinthians' attitudes. First is the word spectacles, and I don't mean eyeglasses here. But look with me at verse 9. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. In the Roman world, for which this was originally written, the readers would have understood very quickly what this was all about. When a Roman general won a victory, there would be a celebration called a triumph. And the captives of war would be led into a, an arena with chains. And they would all be led out into the arena. They would be mocked by the crowds. And then they would be fed to wild beasts. This is the idea of the spectacle that Paul has in mind. This was a very degrading kind of thing. And Paul said, that's what we are, the apostles. James Moffat explains this should be translated, God means us apostles to come in at the very end like, like doomed gladiators in the arena. This is not a pretty picture, but Paul sarcastically paints the apostles of Christ in this manner. The Corinthians thought they were hot shots, but Paul says the true apostles are like captives in the arena being led to slaughter. Then he uses the word fools in verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. The Corinthians loved human wisdom. They still looked at Paul and the other apostles as babblers, as vain, foolish babblers. They thought that they were much more sophisticated and uh, intelligent than the apostles. They even saw the message of the gospel and the work of the ministry as something that was beneath them. And so again, Paul uses sarcasm to make his point. 
He paints them as being wise, strong, and distinguished, while the apostles were foolish, weak, and dishonored. And again, you see what Paul's doing here. He's trying to show who the the real um, people who are following God's wisdom and doing God's will, the apostles, and they were the ones that should have been elevated, but they were the ones that were debased. Well, the Corinthians should have been humble, but they were the ones who were exalting themselves. And so Paul's using the sarcasm here to point out the distinction. Thirdly, there's the idea of being sufferers. Look at verse 11. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. While the Corinthians were living high on the hog, the apostles were suffering with poor conditions for the sake of the gospel. They were like homeless vagrants on the street. And you are probably familiar with this well-known passage. But in the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul catalogs his own sufferings for the sake of the ministry. Turn with me for just a moment to 2 Corinthians 11. Look with me at verse 23. They are ministers of Christ. I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And then he says this, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? Paul gives a catalog here of all the various things he has suffered. Why? As an apostle of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, to be faithful as a steward for Christ. But back in 1 Corinthians 4, the word toil in verse 12, which he also used in 2 Corinthians 11, means to work to the point of exhaustion. And the phrase here, with our own hands, refers to manual Labor. The apostles weren't wealthy. They were common people. They had common jobs. They, they worked hard in order to provide their own living. 
They worked with their own hands. The Corinthians saw that as being beneath them. But the apostle said, the apostle, Paul says, the apostles, we work to the point of exhaustion in contrast to that. Then Paul uses one more analogy in his amplification here, and that is the word scum in verse 13. Look at the last part of verse 13. We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. The New International reads, Up to this moment we have become the scum of the earth the refuse of the worlds. These are not flattering terms. These are not terms where uh, they're trying to elevate themselves in the eyes of men. No. We're We're just like the scum of the earth. We just want to be faithful to Christ. The word for scum there refers to the scrapings that are cleaned off of a dirty dish or pan. These words were commonly used figuratively of the lowest and the most degraded of criminals who often were sacrificed in pagan ceremonies many times in the arena. And so these terms kind of go together. We're just the spectacles. We're the scum of the earth. That's how the world viewed the apostles. That is why Paul is being so straightforward in confronting the pride of the Corinthians. He's saying, if those who were chosen as the foundation of the church could be so humiliated, then why should you Corinthian Christians think that you are so important? And in the same way, we in the church today, especially here in America, should guard our hearts from becoming prideful. And any time we start thinking that we are something special, we should remind ourselves that everything we have comes from God. And we also, by the way, should remind ourselves of our brothers and sisters in other nations that don't have near what we have those who are in poverty, those who are being sacrificed as martyrs, those who are refugees, who are fleeing for their lives with no homes because their homes have been bombed and destroyed. We should remember those who are part of the church elsewhere who don't have nearly as much as we do. Listen, Pride is destructive. Pride brings division and strife. Lord, clothe us with humility. Lord, protect us from our own pride. Lord, keep us from the strife that arrogance brings with it. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that You would keep us from pride. Lord, that is perhaps the greatest sin, perhaps the most common sin, perhaps the most destructive sin. But we know from Your Word that it is something that we must avoid. We must not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think.
We must not exalt people and put people on pedestals and put one person above another in our assessment, but we must clothe ourselves with humility. We must understand and remember that all things come from you and that you are the one who produces the harvest, that we're just the workers. We're just the stewards. We're, we're just the slaves, the servants. So help us to be faithful. And help us to be faithful until the time that you come, that we can be with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.